0: It could help the situation It's not the generation that he gathered on his nation but a save
1: butter safe Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Marie Merritton. Arguing with anti-vaxxers and climate science deniers can seem futile. But, when the, but the journalism website Neiman Lab recently published an article about a research claim, paper claiming that it's worthwhile arguing with people who refuse to recognise some kinds of scientific evidence. I spoke about the paper, as well as his research more broadly, with Professor Stefan Lewandowski, a psychologist who studies belief in misinformation. He is currently based at the University of Bristol, from where he spoke to me last Wednesday. Why don't you start by telling me what led you to study belief in misinformation?
0: Oh, well, basically, I became interested in that during the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003, which is when I was living in Australia. And uh, one of the things that was surprising or fascinating about the media coverage uh, relating to that event is that a lot of things were initially reported and then an hour later or so the media would publish a correction because all these preliminary tests for weapons of mass destruction, uh, always turned out to be a false alarm. You know, there was always something that was reported and then it was corrected. And as a cognitive scientist, I thought, hmm, this is really interesting. I wonder what happens, uh, in people's minds when they're constantly exposed to this sort of media coverage. So I ran an experiment on that, and and I found that indeed, for many people, it is difficult to keep track of things that are being corrected. And I found that some people even believed in things Relating to the Iraq War that they knew were false, and that really intrigued me initially, and that's how I got started.
1: One of the things I read about the work you were doing about then was something called motivated reasoning. Can you can you explain a little bit about that?
0: Well, basically, what's happening there is that people start out with a conclusion that they need to come to because their ideology or their prior biases or whatever tells them that has to be true, then they go out and they adjust the evidence in their minds in order to, to fit that particular outcome. So unlike conventional cognition, where you look at the evidence and then draw conclusions, It sort of goes the other way around with motivated cognition. You start out with a conclusion that has to be true and then you make, make the evidence fit the conclusion.
1: So traditionally it's been thought it's a, it's a bad idea to well engage um, climate change deniers for instance or anti-vaxxers. Is that one of the reasons why because people are starting with a, a belief already?
0: Well, basically, yes. I mean, absolutely. If you start out talking to somebody who's completely committed to a position, then chances are that, you know, that's not going to be terribly successful. And experience shows that that is the case. If somebody is committed to a position of science denial, be it anti-vax or climate denial, then there's very, very difficult to dislodge them from that position because they're not interested in evidence, obviously. Otherwise, they wouldn't hold that position.
1: So this um, paper in na- sorry Nature Human Behavior it uh, shows that arguing with climate change deniers and anti-vaxxers is worthwhile. But... Well,
0: actually, actually, it doesn't show that. Um, <laughs> what it shows is that if you rebut climate deniers in a public forum where uh, you know they have said something to an audience and you then intervene and say, well, actually, hang on, whatever you were just told is not the case, that is when you can be effective. But what the study was doing was to, was to look at interventions involving the public at large. I mean, they did not argue with people who had a committed position. They just intervened in a simulated public discussion where the general public was presented with rebuttals to denialist arguments. And what you find there is that that, that, that can be done successfully. Which is nice to know, but it's not entirely surprising because, of course, we do know that, you know, telling people things does make a difference sometimes.
1: Just to step back a bit, you're saying the study basically shows that uh, if there's a public discussion, then you should uh, engage with a science denier. What is the risk of doing that? How can it do more harm than good?
0: That's that's a, actually a very nuanced question or at least it has a question that has a it's a question that has a nuanced answer. The problem can arise that if people have never heard of an argument or of a myth or a falsehood that then telling them that something is false they've never heard of before is inadvisable because what that can do is to create something uh, that is often called the backfire effect, whereby people end up believing something more after you correct it than they did beforehand. Now, that risk exists in particular when people have never heard of the myth before. So that is why very often the recommendation is, made by communication experts not to give oxygen to falsehoods because if you talk about the falsehoods, they just become more widely known and hence more entrenched in people's minds. So that is one circumstance where I would suggest do not (laughs) engage, do not correct a myth that no one has ever heard of. What's
1: an example of a myth here? Well,
0: It it depends totally on the circumstances. One concrete example that that actually triggered my interest in this particular issue was a tweet from the EU disinformation squad. They're the people here with the European Union who are tackling mainly Russian disinformation, but also other disinformation, and they correct that by issuing press statements or tweets. And this one tweet that I recall was something like, 8,000 women raped every year in Brussels, question mark? No, that's a myth. Well, I had never even heard of that myth beforehand. I would have never thought that that number of women could possibly be raped in Brussels, which is a perfectly safe city. So I thought, hmm, that's interesting, because if, if, the, if the tweet with the debunking hadn't mentioned that myth, I would have never heard about it. Then it turns out that under those circumstances, you, you are running the risk of making things worse by spreading misinformation through its correction that people have never heard before.
1: Are people more prone to believe a myth? Is there something attractive about a lie?
0: Well, that's also a good question. I think, first of all, generally, people will believe anything they hear. And that is deeply embedded in our culture and possibly in our evolution because in our daily lives, we're, we're surrounded by people who are by and large honest to us. There's very little deception in most of our lives on a day-to-day day-to- basis. People and families don't tend to lie to each other all the time. Our neighbors don't tend to do that. Our colleagues do not do that. So we're surrounded by people who are actually honest and who are conforming to our expectations of honesty. And so it is very natural for people to think that anything they hear or see is likely to be true. It's It's a very you know, reasonable working assumption in our daily lives. But of course, the problem with that is that sometimes when you go online, read newspapers or whatever, or listen to politicians, sometimes that expectation is violated. And then we end up believing things that are not. So that's that's the first part. And that is very important to understand that uh, one of the problems with misinformation is that once you hear something, you you automatically assume that to be true. And Once it is in people's memories, then it becomes quite difficult to dislodge or to correct.
1: How does a scientist, as a human person as well, having to cultivate scepticism, possibly be able to do her work, if that's how our brains work?
0: That's precisely why the scientific method is so important and why it is important for scientists to constantly question their conclusions and to uh, check everything, and then to correct their understanding of the world if the data turn out to be different, or if there is contrary evidence to, to what you have thought. And it's not easy to do that. You know, you have to be trained to do that. But I think, you know, at least with the scientific method, we have a way of making sure that the enterprise as a whole is uh, ultimately
1: self-correcting. We started with the instances where there it's a really bad idea to engage with science deniers, which is public fora, or where you repeat misinformation as a starting point of debunking it. Can you tell us about places or instances where it's, it is a good idea to engage with a science denier?
0: Well, first of all, to Depends on what you mean by engaging with. We, we we have to be careful that we we're talking about the same thing here. As I said before, engaging with a particular person who holds a committed position is in ninety nine out of hundred cases probably a waste of your time. It is not a worthwhile effort for me to talk to somebody who's committed to the idea that vaccinations don't work. Why would I waste my time? So for me, as a communicator or scientist, it's much more important to talk to the public at large and to inform the public at large about why science deniers are wrong, because of course they are. (laughs) Otherwise, the scientific community wouldn't be so... in in, in such clear agreement about issues such as climate change and vaccination. So talking to the public is important, and that's the paper in Nature Human Behavior that you mentioned at the beginning. That's what the paper is about. What can you do to the public to correct their beliefs about uh, science denial? And what's very interesting there is that basically what this paper showed and what, what I have also worked on, you can do this in a number of ways, but the way that I like the best is by explaining to people what the techniques are, the rhetorical techniques by which science deniers uh, are misleading the public. So, for example, John Cook, Lee Ecker, and I the study we've done recently, we told people that the tobacco industry used to mislead the public about the ill health effects of tobacco by a variety of techniques such as generating fake experts, people who were not actually experts but who pretended to be doctors or who who presumed, you know, who, who were giving the authority of being scientists who were telling the public that tobacco smoke was actually harmless. Now, of course, we know it isn't. It is a health hazard. But for a long time, the tobacco industry was able to get away with that. Well, if we now tell people that this is what the tobacco industry used to do, then we can show in in some studies that the public then becomes less prone to be misled by climate deniers because they're using a similar. Technique, and so by just telling people how they're being misled, you can sometimes neutralize the information that they receive from deniers.
1: So this is a type of inoculation. Indeed, what happens in the mind of, say, I'm undecided about climate science. I'm not, but let's say I am, and I'm talking to someone who, or I'm I'm at a public forum where someone who is a very strong climate science denier is is talking. And say, a science advocate appears, and they have a discussion. If the science advocate tells me about techniques of denial, that's more effective. Is that what you're saying
0: well basically if you can if you can manage to do that, then yes, now, of course, one aspect of inoculation is that it works better if you can you know tell people ahead of time, but nonetheless, it is always worth pointing out you know why the particular argument that the science denier has made why that was wrong, and it is Obviously, it requires a bit of skill to understand how the argumentation is done. But yes, then it is helpful to do that. Hey, you, you who are listening, we haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website, 3cr.org.au, or call us on
1: 94198377 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. You're with Communication Mixdown. This is a conversation I had with Stefan Lewandowski, who studies why people hold beliefs that are at odds with science and continue to hold them in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence. There's this amazing meme that I see occasionally around um, that says something like, uh, the, the world's scientists conspire to create this crisis of climate change, but a plucky band of oil company uh, executives, you know, stand up against them. That that. I've always found that incredibly attractive intellectually as a, as a way to kind of think about this. And I guess yes. that's what you're saying, isn't it?
0: Yeah, precisely. It is basically illustrate the techniques, illu- you know, sort of point to the incoherence, for example, of science denial. I mean, that is one other common aspect of science denial, that it is extremely incoherent and self-contradictory. And obviously, things that are self-contradictory are very unlikely to be true. In fact, almost certain they're not true. And just to give you one example, there are people out there who deny climate change who will say something like, well, we don't even know what global temperature is because it is so unreliable and thermometers don't actually measure uh, temperatures or whatever. So they'll say that in one sentence, but then in the next sentence, they'll tell you that the planet has been cooling for the last 10 years. Well, how do you know it's been cooling if 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 you don't trust the thermometers? You know, it makes no sense to say both claims at the same time, and yet that is done quite frequently. And if you tell the public about this incoherence, then that'll sort of prime them to be a little bit careful about What deniers are
1: saying. So say you inoculate the public at large, they they look out for these techniques, they're able to spot them, they're able to sort of arm themselves against these arguments. Will we always then have like a small number of people in society that we're never going to reach consensus with? I mean, people who are already anti-vaxxers and climate sceptics?
0: Yes, I think think you, you just have to accept that, you know, on pretty much any issue, you will find some people that are just, you know, having clinging to a different belief, and that's perfectly fine. The only question is whether those people should determine policy or the future of our children or the future of our planet. And I would suggest no, these people should be ignored for those purposes. But that doesn't mean they have to be converted. You know, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that <laughs> what, whatever we do in the future, however we deal with the climate crisis, there'll always be people who say, oh, it's just a hoax. You know, I mean, there are people who think that Pearl Harbor was a false flag operation and actually it wasn't the Japanese, but the Americans who attacked themselves. You know, I mean, there are always going to be people who think, who have opinions that are are not widely shared, let's put it that way. That's perfectly fine. It's just we've got to make sure that they don't. Determine our future.
1: Is there a particular type of person who is more easily prey to this sort of to conspiracy or, or sort of this sort of almost contrarian thinking or willful blindness?
0: Well, indeed. Well, with climate denial, the primary motivating factor is people's ideology. I can ask uh, people in my experiments. I can ask them five questions about the free market, and if they express enthusiastic support for free, unregulated markets then I can be fairly certain that they will also deny climate change. There is an extremely strong association between conservatism generally, but specifically free market libertarianism and rejections of climate science. And, of course, that link is is completely expected and understandable because if you want to address the climate crisis, we're going to have to change the way we do business. There's no way around that. We're going to have to, you know, put a price on carbon or we have to regulate emissions. And all of those measures are, you know, emotionally deeply challenging to people who believe in free markets because it is an interference with what is presently the claim to be a, a free market. So, you know, it is understandable that there would be a conflict between ideology and, and science. And so, yes, there are particular people who are susceptible to climate denial for ideological reasons. And and indeed, a similar relationship exists for vaccinations, although it is much attenuated. But even there, libertarians tend to be the ones who are rejecting scientific evidence about vaccinations because of concerns about their parental autonomy because the vaccinations are mandatory in many places in the world. You can't send your kids to school unless they've been vaccinated. And that, again, is an interference with what a parent might want to do otherwise. And so there are some individuals who are particularly concerned about that interference. And so they reject vaccinations for that reason
1: conservatism seems to inoculate people against evidence?
0: No, not generally. I wouldn't say that generally. I think it depends on the circumstances. If a scientific finding has consequences that are impinging on people's worldview, then that science will be rejected. But that doesn't necessarily mean that just because you're conservative, you will reject any scientific evidence. I mean, conservatives are perfectly happy to, to, you know buy a car, which is based on physics, and fly an airplane that's based on physics, and buy an iPhone, which is based on science. They're perfectly happy to do that because it's not in conflict with their worldview.
1: The paper says false news stories about science spread faster than true ones, Yes, yes. but that's not just, yes, just about believing. And,
0: and yes, and there's, there's some evidence for that in, in many situations. And I think the reason for that is twofold. Number one, quite often fake news stories are probably uh, more encouraging than true scientific stories, especially when it comes to climate change, because a news headline that says, ooh, climate change is a hoax, you can keep driving your SUV, well, that's that's good news, isn't it? So why wouldn't I share that and uh, pass it on to my friends? Because, yes, wonderful, we can all drive our large gas guzzlers. So that may be one reason underlying that. The second reason is that a lot of these fake news stories are designed with commercial Intent and, you know, just to generate clicks. So people will create headlines that are particularly attractive and, and that are sort of funny or outrageous, you know, clickbait as it is called. And that is something that, that is then very easily shared. So I think it is simply a matter of the attractiveness of a headline that determines a lot of sharing behavior.
1: I'd like you to tell the story of uh, of your paper that was retracted um, mm-hmm. because it, it seems to reveal some important lessons.
0: Right, yes. Well, that happened, um, gosh, six, seven years ago now. Or In a nutshell, I published a paper that showed that the... People who were enraged by a previous paper that I had published about the link between conspiratorial thinking and science denial, Um, the people who got enraged about it then themselves engaged in conspiratorial thinking on the Internet and I analyzed the discourse of those uh, particular people on the Internet and published a paper about it saying, well, you know, isn't it interesting that the people who got upset about my research linking conspiracy theories to climate denial are now actually engaging in, in a discourse that is arguably conspiratorial in nature. So what happened then was in response to this second paper about the discourse on the Internet, that became the subject of... of widespread uh, complaints, attacks, and complaints to the university, complaints to the journal, and the usual confected outrage that is always deployed when somebody, a scientist uh, or a politician, says something that is inconvenient to climate deniers. And so ultimately the journal said, we we're worried about, you know, being sued, and they retracted the paper for legal reasons. And what happened then was that the same paper was initially posted on a website owned by the University of Western Australia, where I was based at the time. It was downloaded another 12,000 times, I think, And no one ever sued the university over this. And then I published the paper a second time to me, a much improved version, about two years later in a different journal. Well, and then it was, of course, again, subject to attacks and complaints and all that sort of thing. However, that second journal was uh, not impressed by that. And the paper is is still up there and has been downloaded umpteen thousand times. So in a nutshell, that was the story and it's a long and complicated story but yes it is quite informative and I even just wrote a chapter about the whole uh, story that came out a few months ago where I'm sort of detailing all the events as they unfolded.
1: Do you think if you did it now you'd get the same sort of conflicted outrage? Has that lowered in volume or intensified?
0: Well that's an interesting question. I mean I think I'm, I'm not paying terribly much attention to that, to be honest. I think it. I. I don't know. It might happen again. It. It. Uh, it might not. I. Um, I imagine there are people out there who, you know, go on internet blogs and or Twitter or whatever and uh, express their outrage whenever I publish anything. I. I wouldn't know that because, I, as I said, I don't pay a lot of attention to that. I don't know if it would happen, if it it would happen now. I suspect it might, but I also get the sense that the level of rhetoric has shifted slightly And that the responses by climate deniers to scientific work has become a little more diffuse. They maybe are no longer targeting specific individuals quite as much. Um, Certainly, I'm no longer being targeted as much as previously. And I know some other people, colleagues of mine, who are no longer being targeted quite as much.
1: Do you think the journals have become brave? You know, given the first one withdrew, but the second one?
0: I think there was a number of factors involved there. And one of the things that has to be borne in mind is that I republished the article, but it was much improved. It had two more experiments in it. It was was completely rewritten and different and much more powerful. So it's difficult to draw comparisons between journals, given one was stronger than the first one.
1: I want to um, end with a question about practical tips for our listeners. Who are at barbecue, and somebody right. <laughs> sprouts some anti vaxxing or um, climate science denial. What should I do as 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 a home as the fork freezes halfway between my plate and my mouth?
0: <laughs> how to how to respond? Well, that's all. Yeah, Uncle Bruce and the Christmas Barbie. Yeah, that's always a problem, isn't it? Well, the first question you got to ask yourself is how how much do you, how much do you want to continue eating in peace, and how much do you want to create a debate? But no, you should respond. And I, I mean, there, there are many different ways in which you can do it, and it's difficult to sort of be totally certain what's the best way to do in every situation. But I would just ask the person why he thinks that all the scientists disagree with him and what it is, what privileged information does he have to come to this different opinion. And usually when you do that, it doesn't take very long, either in the first or the second sentence, The person is likely to say, oh, okay, well, because the scientists are in it for the money or whatever, or because they, you know, they're all liberals or they're all whatever. And then you can sort of appeal to the plausibility of that. You can say, do you really think that all the climate scientists around the world got together, all 20 or 30,000 of them and decided to create a world government. I mean, it's just not plausible for that to have happened. And so I think that's an easy way of defanging the okay, argument, Bruce, or at least yes. showing to everybody else at the Christmas party where this guy is coming from, basically that he thinks climate scientists engaged in a conspiracy or all the medical authorities around the world engaged in a conspiracy. And most people recognize that that is not the case. You know, I mean... <laughs> You can't even get three climate scientists to agree on where to have dinner, let alone to for 20,000 of them to get together to create a world government.
1: That was Professor Stefan Lewandowski from the University of Bristol talking about arguing with science deniers. That's it for communication mixdown this week. We're back again next Monday.
0: 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference.
1: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.